0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Matthew Ratcliffe, Professor of Philosophy at the University of York. His new book, Grief Worlds, A Study of Emotional Experience, is just out from the MIT Press. The grief we feel when someone close to us dies is characterized by a complex and profound experience of loss. But what is this experience? In Grief Worlds, Ratcliffe articulates a common structure to grief experiences, even while emphasizing that each person's experience is highly individual. In his account, we live in experiential worlds structured by valued possibilities and anticipations that are integral to our identities as persons. And in grief, we experience a disruption or undermining of these networks of significant possibilities. His analysis draws on personal testimonies of grief experiences gathered in a public survey, along with philosophical work from The Analytic, and phenomenological traditions. Rakev also examines the bodily phenomenology of grief, the ways we transition to post-bereavement worlds, and the ways in which continuing bonds with the deceased and the pre-bereavement world can be adaptive. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Matthew. Welcome to New Books and Philosophy.
1: Hello, Carrie.
0: Um, I'm very... Uh, excited to talk about grief worlds, a study of emotional experience. Um, uh, before we begin, let's, let's get a bit of information about about you. Um, so, how did you become a philosopher, and how did you come to write this book?
1: Oh, how did I become a philosopher? Um... Well, I think going back to when I was a teenager, I suppose, I'd got it into my head that I was going to be a medical doctor or a vet or something like that, but it didn't... I don't think I was genuinely interested, and what did strike me was that everything just seemed uh, utterly strange and bewildering and peculiar, and things that people took for granted seemed sort of rather baffling. So I guess that drove me into philosophy. I did a first degree in philosophy and psychology at Durham University, And then I drifted into philosophy of science at Cambridge during my MPhil and PhD. And then after that, I took a rather staggering route driven by contingency rather than purpose and ended up working on a combination of uh, phenomenology, philosophy of psychiatry, and I suppose uh, interdisciplinary emotion theory. And that's kind of where I've settled ever since, really.
0: Mm, Well, this book certainly brings, you know, a lot of those things together, um, because it's the phenomenology of the grief process. Um, uh, I guess a good way to begin is to get an idea of what you consider to be grief, right? I mean, you, you, a brief description would be or definition would be an emotional response, a loss. Um, But obviously, there's a bit more to say about that. So what is what is your analysis of grief?
1: Well, yes, I suppose one of the first tasks might be to get to sort of clarify one's referent. So if I'm offering a phenomenological analysis of grief, what am I actually talking about? I mean, in fact, I don't want to be too prescriptive. Uh, I've been thinking about grief in the book, book primarily um, in relation to the death of a person. So we can think of it as a protracted emotional response to the death of a person one, one loves or cares about deeply. However, if you look at everyday discourse, the term grief is used in a more permissive way as well. So people will talk about grief over the breakup of a relationship. Uh, Sometimes grief over the loss of a job. Uh, Also, maybe something will come to later, grief over things that never happened or never will be. So there's this more permissive use of grief where it's used to refer to a range of non-death losses and how we experience them. So what I tend to do is focus on bereavement and use grief, the term grief principally to refer to that. Uh, But I, I also am entirely accepting of a more permissive conception of grief which encompasses a wider range of losses. And the reason for that is I think there are a lot of structural similarities between bereavement experiences and other experiences of loss. Furthermore, I think by tending to focus specifically on bereavement when thinking about grief and loss, um, there's perhaps a tendency to eclipse some of these experiences or to understate their significance. So I I actually... um, I'm open to both narrow and broader uses of the term grief.
0: Okay, good. Good, cuz one of the things you do later on uh in the book which we we'll, which we'll get to is um in reference to a survey that you took uh that you undertook in the in, in 2020 2021 where a number of the respondents uh reported feeling grief about, um, not having had children, you know, childlessness, uh, which, you know, you know, is one of those interesting cases where there's genuine, there, there seems to be genuine grief, but it's not for something, something that got lost. Um, so, um, Okay. Can you? So I've mentioned the grief experience survey. Could you could you say a bit about that about that survey? Because there's quotes sprinkled throughout the book that come from that survey.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's a it's a technique that I first started using um, back in about two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, I think, when I was working on the phenomenology of depression um, as part of a co- collaborative project. And we thought, well, rather than just relying on published sources, let's just see if we can ask people what it's like to be depressed and give them a series of questions addressing various different aspects of experience and invite them to give um, free text, open-ended responses. And back then we were really surprised that within the space of a couple of weeks we got well over 100 responses. And these were incredibly detailed with these rich, insightful nuanced descriptions of the experience of depression and we were so overwhelmed by what we got so quickly we just shut the survey down um, and then then spent a long time reflecting on these on these responses and we learned a great deal from them. And so because of that I've done this subsequently on a number of occasions and I think probably the the grief questionnaire was the most fruitful we got, 265 responses again in a fairly short period and 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 again what really strikes me is just how eloquently people describe these you know extraordinarily painful and and for many people sort of unusual and unsettling aspects of experience so we've got a a range of testimonies um, which address various aspects of grief we ask people you know does the world seem different during grief, how does your body feel, um, have you, do you continue to relate to the person who's died, uh, and so on. I think it was 21 questions in total. And so we got all these responses, and we've used them to inform our philosophical thinking. We've also made them publicly available in two different formats, uh, one that is uh, tailored for use by other researchers, and one which is for the general public to explore their own and others' experiences of grief by, by engaging with these responses. So I, mean, I, I don't really think of them as data in the context of phenomenological inquiry. It's more th- these are testimonies that I, I interpret that sort of challenge certain philosophical assumptions I might make or illustrate various points or identify something where it's important to make distinctions, perhaps, that aren't ordinarily made. And sometimes we're faced with experiences that are just challenging to understand at all. But one of the things that strikes me is often you don't have to do a lot of interpretive work. You can set out a phenomenological position and you find that sometimes people are describing things in in, in fairly similar terms. And an emphasis in my own work that I find time and time again in these studies of of Uh, experiential disturbance if you like people emphasize changes disruptions uh, changes and disruptions in the experience of possibility and a profound sense of the loss of possibilities and i found that stretching all the way from these surveys on depression through to grief uh, despite various important differences in the kinds of experience people are describing Mm.
0: so so one of the one of the things that that structures your analysis of the phenomenology, uh, or the experience of grief is this idea that there's, um, a contradiction or at least some sort of tension, uh, in, in these experiences and, and you develop a, what you call a two-sided view of, of grief, um, of the phenomenology. I say where it's, you know, it's both the, you know, the individual and also the world. I mean, that's kind of where I, I take it your title the title Grief Worlds comes from this, this aspect could you could you explain that general
1: perspective? Yeah sure and I mean another aspect of the title Grief Worlds is the plural where I, I'm very hesitant about making any kind of um, sort of firm generalizations about grief so I would stress that this one thing I just keep finding is this tremendous variety and also a great deal of complexity that often passes unnoticed but I think a structure that is common to probably all of those experiences that we might refer to as profound grief or as involving a profound sense of loss is what I call this two-sided structure. And it applies not just to grief, but to a range of emotional episodes and processes. So there are two steps, really. One is to say that an, an emotion involves experiencing something as significant as mattering in one or another way, relative to what you might call a value system, a web of commitments, cares, concerns, projects and goals, which is coherent to varying degrees. So we experience something as significant in the light, if you like, of our values, broadly construed. But the other aspect of this is something can appear significant where its significance involves the potential or actual undermining of that value system so it it matters and how it matters implies the way in which it matters implies the disruption of the very value system relative to which it matters so you have this kind of tension and instability and also a dynamic structure as one negotiates the significance of something relative to a changing value system but the other step and this is sort of where it relates to phenomenology and more specifically themes in the phenomenological tradition is that a lot of what i've just referred to as our value system takes the form of a presupposed experiential world it's a context that we inhabit forged by habitual practices and expectations which constitute ways of experiencing things uh, patterns of thought and patterns of activity and I offer a more specific analysis in terms of the possibilities that our surroundings offer. So even now, as I'm just sitting in this room talking with you via a microphone, things appear immediately pre-reflectively significant in various different ways. The microphone in front of me, my distant interlocutor, who I'm aware of through the names on the screen and and so on, the pile of papers surrounding me, the glass of water, all of this knits together as a sort of fairly coherent network of significance, so the world is imbued with possibilities that reflect our values, and what happens in grief over a period of time is you have something that appears significant within the context of a world, and yet it appears significant in a way that undermines the very world in which it appears. So there's this tension that's characteristic of certain kinds of emotional intentionality, um, in various different ways. Um, emotion can involve experiencing something in a way that if you like pulls the rug out from under your feet. And this isn't something that you comprehend or recognize instantly. It can be something that plays out over a prolonged period of time and involve not just a singular experience of tension, but a range of different, uh, Tensions and incongruities and uh, a sort of sense of disorientation
0: mm. could you are there um i mean i'm sure this is this is this has happened um and probably was reported in the survey um but this this sense of significance um that gets undermined um or the value system that gets undermined um is there um a, how do I put it, uh, a sort of uh, aspect of, of revelation or <laughs> self-knowledge or something where you don't know what the value system is until uh, the rug gets pulled out, so to speak?
1: Yes. I mean, somebody else who's been writing on grief recently is Michael Cholby in Edinburgh, and he's placed more emphasis on self-knowledge than I have. Um, but I, I think yes, that there can be this sense of of revelation, and this is something that's common to various forms of emotional experience, and also to certain kinds of uh, phenomenological inquiry, and, and also to phenomenological inquiry. It's the what one recognizes sometimes the contingency of what was previously taken for granted. So in an extreme case, what you just took as given as, as your world, the background of your life, something that's integral to your sense of um, identity and one sense of identity is, is, is suddenly gone. And people talk about their world being shattered, no longer being the same person, uh, finding themselves utterly lost and bewildered. Uh, and so it's, it's described in various ways and also it happens in various different ways so there can be this sudden sense of things being shattered, but in fact, this can play out over time in a number of different ways.
0: Right. Well, I mean, so um, I guess you know, I'm I'm thinking of cases where, uh, I mean, you talk about the you know, the anticipatory structure of a of a life. Right. There's certain, you know, you're embedded in a per, in a certain experiential world and and this is why the experience of losing say a spouse or something like that i mean is uh, you want that person is playing a particular role and then of course the loss of that person you know disrupts all those you know anticipated experiences with that person who is no longer alive um but i'm thinking also of cases where uh it isn't an explicit, obvious um, element in one's life at all, and something happens, and it's and it and you don't even, may not even recognize right what, why you might be feeling a little bit disrupted.
1: So you're not thinking specifically of bereavement now, are you? But more generally,
0: no, maybe not. Um, or maybe just a sense that. Oh, what I'm feeling is bereavement, because mm. now I recognize that there was this thing that was part of my life, but I didn't really recognize it as such.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting point. I think I think you're you're right. And I one one thing I emphasize is that you know that there there are very different aspects to grief. So grief is of course you know about the death of the person it's not just about what happened to me it's about what they've lost as well um but when we're thinking about the what's happened to me aspect um i mean it's actually quite difficult to individuate the experience of grief or loss because when a person dies so many other things are lost that might not seem to relate to that person but in fact do so Perhaps, you know, all these things we did together are not the same, but it was always us who met with our friends, and, and this is no longer possible. So, so there are all these losses, um, many of which won't be anticipated, and also many of which won't be recognised by other people. So the death of a person is recognised, of course, through funerals, condolences, all sorts of rituals and practices and narratives. But there's so much other stuff surrounding bereavement that passes by silently and you know in extreme cases maybe people struggle to articulate this there's a sense of loss or disorientation and they can't really pin it down but i do think this applies much more generally there are all sorts of forms of loss that are under theorized under recognized difficult to articulate one might sense that something is wrong and then perhaps over a period of time it crystallizes and one comes to the recognition that, yes, this is integral to my grief. Uh, this is part of my grief or this, this is a form of grief. Um, and I think we, we, we often are surprised by the context in which we experience grief or loss. And this is getting sidetracked a little bit, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. I think we're, we're really bad, as others have remarked, At anticipating how we will feel on some future occasion in light of certain events so one example would just be you know I always commit to too too many papers to write or too many conference presentations I think I'll be fine and then a year later I'm thinking why the heck did I say that what on earth was I thinking so you can't sort of put yourself in the position of your future self and I think that's partly because So much of our experience is constituted by what we take to be this presupposed world rather than something integral to our own psychology. Um, So suppose you're thinking, oh, you know, should I break up with this person? Uh, Should I move to this new place? You might imagine everything and think, yeah, well, that's going to be all right. And then you find it's not. And there's this sense of loss and it concerns something you haven't factored in because you took it for granted for the world. As if this world could somehow be exported as well, and of course it can't. And I think there are a range of circumstances where we are surprised by loss, bewildered by loss. So, I mean, as you can see, I could probably go on forever there. And um, I, I just think there's so much to say on this topic about the ways in which we anticipate and then experience loss.
0: Well, yeah. So, I mean, so it, it, this was a sense I got from the from the book you know, because of your, you know, kind of permissive, you know, you weren't really interested in, you know, defining grief. I mean, it was more just the phenomenology that you're exploring. Um, But again, the way you, you, you kind of get it, you know, describe the, the experiences, you know, not so much having an object, but as a loss of certain, um, you know, possibilities, the connection with, with loss of possibilities made me, think you know is is this really a, a phenomenology of loss rather than of grief as such or or you know do we just mean by grief we well we don't want to mean grief as loss i mean i don't think that seems very too broad and i, mean, I but think the, but the, your analysis seems to have greater scope than grief
1: yeah, I mean, again, I'm slightly worried about the fact that both of these terms slide around. Um, uh, so we can refer to grief, uh, you know, sp- uh, in a specific way, uh, where where grief is a response to a, a, an emotional response to a death. Um, but then we can think of grief as referring to wider experiences of loss. But there are also various experiences of loss that we don't talk of usually. In terms of grief, Um, the book is focused specifically on grief over the death of a person. And I think what's distinctive there um, is a sense of of the irrevocable absence of another person, the loss of their possibilities and our possibilities, rather than just our own. But of course, the boundaries are never going to be clear cut. So, you know, there, there are really difficult cases such as pregnancy loss, where people some people will, will will refer to it as a bereavement, and others will resist that language. So that there are all sorts of cases where it's not clear whether what we're calling grief is a- about a bereavement or principally about a bereavement. So I, I, I do think that there is something that, that, that there is something to be said for focusing on bereavement grief, and that's what I do. But at the same time, I acknowledge that, If we think of grief in a broader sense as well as a sort of loss of possibilities that are integral to who one is as a person, then this applies much more widely as well. And there are important similarities between bereavement and other forms of loss. And I also think it illuminates our understanding of bereavement experiences if we also think of grief or loss in this broader sense, because bereavement grief isn't just about the death of a person. It's about the loss of so much that involves or implicates that person in one or another way.
0: Yeah. So yeah, to you know, to bring us kind of back to the the structure of the book itself, you you talk about anticipatory structures. You mentioned this before, but could you could you go into that a bit more about? Um, uh, the anticipatory structures in in a life or of experience and and then the relation of of grief to these anticipatory structures
1: uh yes i mean my 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 work for a number of years has sort of drawn on and sought to develop themes in the phenomenological tradition um i sort of started off by writing about heidegger quite a lot but i've, I've gone off heidegger for i, I don't I, I don't quite know why um, <laughs> I, I think maybe after a while you just develop some kind of allergic reaction i'm not sure um, but I, I i tend still to draw a lot on sort of the combination of Husserl and Merleau ponty and the and common theme is what we might call the horizontal structure of experience Which is the idea that pre-reflective experience, regardless of whether or not we want to call this perceptual, um, involves not just encountering what is right here, right now, but rather there's always this structured system of possibilities, and these involve perceptual possibilities. So when I see this stapler in front of me, I can pick it up as I am now. I can bang it on the desk and disrupt this recording. There there are all these these various possibilities involving the thing that we're open to in this pre-reflective, immediate way. So my visual perception of the stapler in front of me incorporates possibilities for perception in other modalities and also for manipulating it in various ways in order to disclose certain perceivable properties. But then there are all sorts of practical possibilities as well. So I broaden this analysis to emphasise how things appear significant in various ways. And the, the next move is crucial, which is to emphasise that many possibilities that we experience take the form of anticipation. We anticipate things unfolding in certain ways as things happen, as others do things, and as we ourselves act upon the world. And ordinarily, this takes the form of, if you like, anticipation followed by fulfillment, it's not that we anticipate exactly what's going to happen. There's a degree of indeterminacy or openness. So for example, if I hear a car driving past now, that's unsurprising, that's consistent with this broad anticipatory structure. Whereas if I hear an elephant making a noise on the street outside the house, that's going to appear immediately incongruous or surprising. So we could say for the most part, things unfold in line with anticipation, albeit indeterminate anticipation. And yet in the context of this broad, cohesive, unfolding pattern of anticipation, there are various localised experiences that we might describe in terms of negation, anomaly, surprise, um, and sometimes doubt, um, ambiguity, and, and a, you know, a different kind of uncertainty. So, what we find in both Husserl and Merleau-Ponty is the, the the idea that our sense of belonging to a world presupposes this um, underlying pattern, this unfolding dynamic style of experience. And um, what I suggest is that, amongst other things. Um, Bereavement disrupts this whole structure. It disrupts established patterns of anticipation uh, in ways that are experienced in terms of strangeness, indeterminacy, and various tensions.
0: So you mentioned, um, you know, Husserl and Merleau Ponty, and and you know the phenomenology of perception that 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 they talk about as well. Um, but also the idea of the body, the involvement of the body, and the the bodily phenomenology of grief. Um, uh, Could you explain that bodily, that element of the phenomenology of grief? Um, uh, Yeah, and and there's also, you also draw a very interesting um, connection to phantom limb syndrome when there's a loss of a limb and yet people continue in, in some ways to experience having the limb so could you say a bit about this the bodily aspect of the phenomenology of grief
1: yeah there's there's quite a lot to stay here to say here so if i if i go on too long just interrupt me and tell me to be quiet um but for for a number of years i've tried to challenge distinctions between if you like the bodily aspects of emotion and the world-directed intentionality of emotion and in short the way i do that which is I think fairly consistent with uh, themes in the work of Merleau-Ponty and to some extent Husserl uh, is to suggest that our experiences of possibilities are inextricable from the feeling body. It's through various bodily tendencies that possibilities appear in our surroundings. The body, if you like, is an organ of perception rather than just an object of, of, of perceptual experience. Um, And something I do throughout the book is emphasise that grief is both bodily and, if you like, richly cognitive. But really, when we're talking about the bodily and the cognitive aspects, we're talking about the same thing. We need to really break down those distinctions to understand grief. So in the third chapter, I emphasise the bodily aspects. And then in the fourth chapter, I suggest that this can at the same time be construed as cognitive. Indeed, it even encompasses linguistic thought. The two are inextricable. But when it comes to the body, one of the things I do is focus on this um, comparison between grief and loss of a limb. So, you know, in everyday discourse, it's often said that grief is like bereavement is like losing a part of oneself. You know, it's like losing an arm or a leg. I really don't know how to explain it, but it is as if a part of me has been amputated. It really is as if part of me is missing. And it just sounds that, you know, when people really emphasise this, it sounds as if there's a lot more to it than just some some kind of analogy that's employed to emphasise how important a person was. And people also describe certain experiences in grief as akin to a phantom limb. You know, it's it's as if they're still there now. It's as if they're present and yet absent. So what I do is say, OK, let's explore both of these experiences in as much detail as we can see to us, to what extent do we find commonalities? Uh, And if there are indeed common structures to these experiences, why might that be the case? And I start off again by turning to Melu ponty who has some passages where he compares grief to phantom limbs. And what he suggests in both cases is that just, is, is that something integral to habitual patterns of expectation Is absent and yet those patterns remain so you can look and see that your arm has gone and yet the world still appears as it would if you had that arm it still offers all the same practical possibilities so you have this non localized sense of absence which is sorry presence which is compatible with your if you like propositional recognition of absence now one thing I say is that phantom limbs in fact are quite heterogeneous and There's a lot more to be said about them. And phantom limbs don't just involve retaining possibilities um, associated with the absent limb. There are also quite vivid image-like experiences of various kinds. Then again, we might say the same about grief. There are various different aspects of grief we could compare to a phantom limb. But let's just focus on this retention of possibilities in the face of what Melod-Ponty calls mutilation. We can see... I think fairly clearly that something another just does indeed apply in the case of bereavement. In certain kinds of interpersonal relationship, another person may be implicated in one's practice uh, to a huge extent, perhaps. In a way that is comparable to one's own limbs just as one's body contributes to the possibilities offered by the world so does the relationship it is only in light of the relationship that we can do this that this appears a possibility that we can carry on in this way that our environment offers us this rather than that so you can see that there's a structural analogy here but furthermore the two are entangled one's body doesn't contribute to experience as a certain component and then other people come in as another component, both contributing in separable ways to the possibilities on offer. Rather, it's the the inextricable combination of the two that determines the possibilities available to us. Um, So our bodily capacities, uh, our projects, and our relationships with others upon which our projects and capacities depend, uh, all of these are interdependent. So we might say that the death of a person can transform one's world in a way that is really is similar to the loss of a part of one's body and also inextricable from the contribution of one's body. So you know, it really does feel as if one's body is different, that one has has lost some ability. So the the analogy with a phantom limb I think turns out to be very, very close indeed in the end, closer than many people have, have taken it to be.
0: Have you have you looked at all in the into um the the neuroscience of grief i mean uh there's certainly certainly been quite a bit of that in terms of phantom limb and you know various ways in which you know the brain might have been structured to you know initiate movement in a particular in a particular uh limb that that prep that preparatory you know sort of neural signaling is still there even though the arm itself is not there or something like that um is have you looked at all into any of the neuros possible you know neural components or 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 um uh, aspects of the grief experience
1: not, not really no and i'm not sure how much we would gain um, by doing so at least where understanding the phenomenology of grief is concerned but I mean I, w- what I did do is look I look at some of the literature on the neuroscience of phantom limbs and other findings that are relevant to the analogy with grief. so I think what you what you'll find is of course there are going to be anatomical differences so you can say quite clearly the anatomical effects of a bereavement are going to be quite different from um, that of losing an arm at the same time, there are you know functional commonalities which are sort of backed up by some of the you know certain scientific findings so I looked at some of this literature on um, you know perceptions of uh, salience and significance and how they're affected by the presence of other people um, so you know how even if you don't know the people you're with, whether something appears more or less appealing, again in a sort of pre-reflective, immediate way, it can depend upon other people in your vicinity, whether they're looking at it, whether they're smiling, and so on. Um, so it does seem that, that there's some quite good evidence to the effect that other people, um, you know, aren't just objects in our environment. They regulate in dynamic ways, the salience and significance of our surroundings. And then if you add to that, the effects of being in a long-term relationship with someone, you know, rather than just bumping into a stranger and having them regulate your perceptions of significance, I think there's quite a lot to be said there. So I think that there's, there's, there's you, you're going to find plenty of evidence to back up claims for, for sort of functional, uh, commonalities. Um, I mean, there, there might well be all sorts of interesting things to say about the, the neuroscience of grief, and I have to confess, I haven't, you know, I haven't explored the literature as far as one might. I, or then again, it could be that there's just nothing there.
0: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I, I myself, I'm not sure that there is that there is a neuroscience of grief. Um...
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one one of the methodological problems with this is that grief isn't an episodic emotion that you can pin down. You can't put somebody in a scanner and look at areas of brain activation associated with feelings of grief. Um, Because, uh, you know, as I've suggested and as many others maintain, grief is better construed as a temporally extended process, which may be unified in certain ways but all the same encompasses a range of different forms of emotional experience, thought process, and activity. So it it would be very difficult to pin down any specific neurobiological correlates of grief. There seems to be a a perhaps intractable methodological problem here when we're talking about grief per se, and then if we talk about components of grief, well, they're equally components of something else. Um, It's not quite clear how one should proceed here, um or what kinds of questions one can legitimately ask
0: yeah yeah well at least certainly not with a scanner <laughs> mm. um, no that's it yeah um so so moving from you know so you have this um these this you know disruptions in our experience of, of possibility and um you know anticipations that 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 end up not getting fulfilled in, in a rather sharp way. Um, how do we go from that stage to uh, the, the new world, I suppose, the, the post-grief or post-bereavement world? What does is, what is that sort of transition consist in?
1: I don't think it consists in anything singular and I think it can happen in various different ways. And there are also various different endpoints. I'm also increasingly wary of just thinking of the the sort of post bereavement world in terms of some complete adjustment, a reconstruction of the world such that it is now uh, entirely coherent with the death of a person. So, you know, one thing I'm thinking about a lot now is uh, and something philosophers haven't actually addressed, to my knowledge, the ways in which people talk of being haunted in various ways by losses something continues to remain in the background, something isn't fully accommodated. Uh, but with that with that in mind, I think we need to address the distinctively personal aspects of grief and also the world of grief. So we can say that the world of grief shifts over time through this sort of protracted process where one is confronted with these experiences of absence and negation and anomaly and practical expectations practices come to be revised over time. So there's this temporal process of accommodating things. First of all, a system of practices may be retained in a way that is utterly at odds with the fact of the death. So this is often described in terms of the death seeming impossible, inconceivable, you know, utterly true. I know beyond any doubt that they've died. And yet it seems unfathomable because my world stays in place. And over time, in various ways, um, the world shifts. And this is something that may be um, enhanced or, or disrupted through one's own activities. Also, it's important to point out that it's massively scaffolded by interpersonal and social environments. It depends on what you do with other people um, and on the ability to engage with the wider social world. So what we saw in the pandemic were profound disruptions of people's grief experiences, which are plausibly associated with the denial of various interpersonal and social opportunities due to social restrictions. And this interfered in various ways with this process of transforming one's world but of course it's not enough just to talk about one's world as if someone's death simply affects one's own system of practices and so on one also you know grief is directed at them it is resolutely interpersonal it is about that person and the interpersonal aspects of grief play out alongside this um, as Peter Goldie um, pointed out um, in, in some of his last uh, last published works, um, grief involves this kind of narrative structure where you look back at your memories of that person, you recognise the significance those memories had for you. And now, at the same time, there's a sense that things are different now. Those memories seem different. Um, those memories aren't significant. They don't point in the same way to the future. They don't relate to one's life in the same way now. So one also has to negotiate the loss of an interpersonal relationship. And as the continuing bonds literature has pointed out, it's not simply about letting go of a person or finally recognising the irrevocable loss of that person. The shift in worlds is accompanied by and indissociable from how one navigates the how how one navigates this loss and how one continues to relate to that person, how one's memories are reconfigured, um, the significance of objects and how one rearranges those objects, um, whether and in what way one feels an enduring sense of connection. One might even talk to them. People talk about a sense of receiving messages in various ways, an ambiguous, sometimes tension-riddled sense of their continuing presence. And in an almost paradoxical way, the continuing presence of the person who's died um, can be integral to one's ability to navigate their death, to negotiate what has happened. So on the one hand, you recognise that they've died, and on on the other hand, there may be this enduring sense of what it's like to be with them. One may continue to experience the possibilities offered by situations somehow in light of that relationship. So there's this really, really complicated mixture of presence and absence um, involving aspects of one's world and of one's relationship with that person. And it's terribly difficult to make generalisations here. But I think what you can do is identify structural features of experience and come to understand those in ways that might help to eliminate any particular case.
0: So yeah, um, I mean, these there there's always a sense in which um, you know sometimes one is urged to uh, you know move on, right? As they say, you know it's you know <laughs> I, I'm and sometimes I mean you discuss times when continuing is, you know, is adaptive, and that seems to me what you were just describing, but also maladaptive, and we're moving on, you know, again, might be adaptive or maladaptive. Um, is, is This is complicated, it's hard to generalize, but um, is there anything general you might say about, you know, when uh, continuing um, might be, you know, might be more adaptive, and when it might be maladaptive.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose the first thing to point out is I've come to think that the contrast that is often drawn between retaining a continuing bond, some sense of connection with the person who's died, and letting go and moving on, that that's quite misleading. And if you look at some of the past literature, sort of Bowlby and even Freud that's supposed to be advocating the view that grief involves letting go and moving on. Um, It can be interpreted plausibly in terms of moving on from a certain life structure or world or system of values that implicates the deceased to to one that doesn't. And that's actually compatible with retaining a a continuing bond. Uh, You can reorganise your world and your habits, but there can still be a place for the person, a continuing... relationship with that person or a sense of connection at least in in one's life Um, but then when it comes to we can still ask when is a sense of connection pathological or inappropriate in some other way and when is it not and I suppose we could say you know what kinds of connection are appropriate or inappropriate and I'm really wary of making any kind of generalization here partly because a kind of bond that is appropriate for one person, according to one or another kind of norm. You know, we can appeal to various different norms here. We can talk about sort of practical norms, moral norms, epistemic norms, uh, medical norms. A kind of bond that might be appropriate to one person in relation to some kind of norm may apply quite differently in the life of somebody else. Uh, It's so sort of contextualised and depends upon people and their circumstances what I try and do later on is just say that there are there are certain distinctive forms of grief that others have labeled pathological and we can describe them in contrast to forms of grief that are labeled as typical and these are forms of grief that involve some combination of three different things Uh, one retains the past world in the face of its impossibility So you might think of this in terms of a kind of denial where it's not that you actively believe a proposition that you somehow, you know, to be untrue, but convince yourself somehow that it remains the case. Rather, the denial would consist in preserving a world that is no longer sustainable, a world that implicates the person. On the other hand, you could think of a form of grief where one doesn't go through the work of revising one's world, but just sort of leaps away from it. And, this, and it continues to bubble up in the background, resulting in sort of, you know, feelings of emotional pain that don't diminish over time. And you can actually think of those two as, as, as sort of compatible in, in various scenarios. But there's something else as well that I think is sometimes missed that I refer to as the place between worlds. So what bereavement can involve and other forms of loss It involves the disruption and loss of all these networks of norms that shape one's activities and thoughts, norms that are ordinarily experienced as embedded in one's surroundings. You you don't have to think about it. Um, You just inhabit a world where you're guided um, in, in these various ways. So what people sometimes describe following a bereavement is the sense of being lost or disorientated where it's not just that you don't know which path to follow anymore. Things don't make sense in a way. Um, Things don't have their place anymore. It's as if the world previously constituted a kind of map with signposts all over the place and it's all gone. I mean, in the most profound scenario, there's no fact of the matter as to what comes next. It almost reminds me of some of Wittgenstein's stuff on rule following Two, four, six, eight, yeah, 16, 10, no fact of the matter. The Kripke Wittgenstein paradox come alive. Right. Um, and I think this is inevitable to some degree following really, really disruptive bereavements. But also, people can end up in this scenario where you can't escape the disorientation. There's not enough structure left to rebuild a world. And I think. Some forms of grief experience are like this. Um, the world remains shattered, shattered in a way that prevents its being rebuilt. Um, we can think a lot here about the interpersonal and social dimensions of regulation again. So, whether or not one ends up lost depends an awful lot on other people and whether one takes it that one can still rely on other people. And I think when, when grief involves an all pervasive loss of interpersonal trust, this often involves this enduring sense of disorientation that one can't recover from. And again, this is relevant when we think of the pandemic because many people grieved in the context of a wider sense of loss and disorientation. So if you like, you know, the structure required to situate the fact of bereavement in the context of a world, that structure was peculiarly lacking. And what a lot of people are describing are these forms of prolonged grief that are variously described as the inability to grieve or, in contrast, as a grief without end. But, again, I would emphasise, I I stray away from making generalisations along the lines of X is pathological, Y is typical. Instead, the most I do is say, here are some things that people take to be pathological, and here's an analysis of these kinds of grief, which shows how they differ from other forms of grief that are taken to be typical. But I... I, I, I tend to, to, to be wary of sort of endorsing um, sort of medicalized conceptions.
0: Right. Um, well, there's a number of things you mentioned there that uh, that I want to pick up on. Um, so, one, you mentioned the COVID-19, you know, pandemic. Um, could, you, could you say a bit more about how your analysis kind of intersects with the – and I don't mean just um, the grief – you know, of of losing a particular person in the pandemic, right? Somebody who who you know got COVID and, and died um, rather suddenly, um, but the the sort of disorientation that it, uh, that people felt who who did not perhaps l- lose a particular uh, member of their family, uh, but just the complete disorientation of the whole the whole world, really.
1: Yes, I mean when I started the the collaborative project that this uh, my book Grief World is part of, I mean we, we, we began this study in January twenty twenty, having received funding for a four year project um, from the UK Arts and Humanities Research Council, and what what we what, what we didn't really see coming were. Um, I don't think anyone really saw it coming no. to, to you. Know, <laughs>
0: it's like it's, two months yeah, later. Like, yeah.
1: Extraordinarily radical restrictions. So when we did the the grief experience survey, this was while people were under lockdown in the UK. And lots of people referred to the pandemic in describing their experiences of grief. And I was also fortunate to be involved in another project, which was led by Tom Froes at the University of Okinawa in Japan. And this involved a, a two pandemic experience surveys, which sought to explore people's wider experiences during these extraordinary times where they were under uh, all sorts of different kinds of social restrictions, depending on their country, the countries or states they were living in and uh, what 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 time in the pandemic this was. Um, and so we received lots of testimonies through both surveys, which described disruptive forms of bereavement grief, some relating to COVID deaths and others to, to, you know, to, to non-COVID deaths. What people also described was this wider sense of loss and disorientation. And this is one of the things that has got me very interested in sort of loss construed more generally. And, and to the extent that it may be the subject matter of my next big, big project. But I think we're, we're all of us are only just beginning to get to grips with this, maybe theoretically and in the context of our own lives. What people describe was a sense of loss or grief relating to particular activities um, or opportunities. But what's perhaps more interesting and philosophically challenging are these cases where people just refer to a loss of possibilities, a loss of time, a loss of the ability to sustain who one was, or to become something or someone that was central to their lives, a tremendous grief over the loss of possibilities for others. And, you know, my own work over a number of years has emphasised the phenomenology of possibility above all else. And I think this emphasis is really conducive to the interpretation of many people's experiences often there's this almost inchoate, wide ranging sense of lost possibilities. So, my project colleagues um, Louise Richardson and Becky Miller have written an article on non death losses in the pandemic just recently, and they make the very point that a lot of this seems trivial you know the sense of grief over not going to the pub sounds just downright insulting in the context of the terrible tragedies that so many have suffered and yet these may these are sometimes just sort of very specific uh, sort of concrete ways of articulating something more general so you just see all these tiny little tips of a whacking great iceberg so it's not just that i can't go to the bingo hall or i can't go and chat with my friend while I'm walking the dog or sit in the cafe or get on the train to work and so on. Uh, all of this together is integral to this much wider loss of possibilities. And that, that, that's what a lot of people describe in many different ways. And again, it's terribly difficult to generalise because the the, the, the pandemic, Meant many different, many different things to different people, and affected people in so many different ways. So, I was looking at one survey response uh, yesterday where someone just wrote, uh, uh, "I don't feel any sense of loss. Uh, I'm stinking rich, and I'm going to make even more money out of this scare fest." So, uh, that, that is in contrast to, to what many other people experienced, um, and it doesn't; it's not restricted to particular age groups either. You know, many older people report, you know, the loss of time that can't be recovered, vital interpersonal opportunities as they approach the end of their own lives, whereas younger people also are referring to these moments that can never be recovered. And, I, I, you know, I don't know how discussion of this will proceed. You know, for, for, for many people, it, it just seems to be like waking up from a bad dream and maybe it will just recede into the past. Um, so I, I don't know... The extent to which these experiences will be theorized or indeed should be theorized is there something here that people need to learn how to talk about is it something that people need to be able to narrate and somehow move on from or 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 is it not would that just be kind of overdoing it a bit and sensationalizing it but whatever the case i'm pretty sure there's some philosophical work to be done here um specifically on the sense of loss and also something related to this, which is what you might call the sense of being lost, this odd form of disorientation or being adrift that many experienced.
0: Mm. Right. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, again, so many different, um, you know, I was thinking about the, you mentioned the, the fact that all of these experiences are, are massively scaffolded by our social, um, environments. And, and you, you had mentioned, you know, this idea that the fact that you maybe couldn't go to the pub, you know, some think of that as trivial or insulting, but of course, that kind of highlights the whole fact of the embedded, the social environment in which in a way you're permitted to experience grief, you know, in some way that is not, um, you know, purely private, um, you know I, and i i i mean this is a in a way a whole another <laughs> whole another aspect that that we haven't explored but um you know it's like uh you know grieving for one's lost you know longtime spouse is is a socially acceptable um loss um loss of other aspects of one's environment which is you know might be equally part of one's world are are not, and interesting to you know, you know the, the way that the social expectations impinge on one's ability to uh, to both experience it and transition away from it um, just seems to be like something, yeah that also that also requires some sort of exploration.
1: Yeah, there's, there's a great deal to be said here. So we can say in the case of bereavement grief, regardless of how uh, sort of insensitive or superficial people's treatment of it may sometimes be, it's something that is socially acknowledged. It is something that is um, that involves various practices and rituals and forms of interaction where people can get together. And we might say the awkwardness of grief is mitigated by certain rituals and expectations which allow people to interact in these these very structured environments, uh, despite dealing with something so so profoundly disruptive of interpersonal relationships. Um, And also you just look at our wider culture. It's very difficult to find um, a film in which someone doesn't die and someone else doesn't grieve. And there are all these literary narratives and autobiographical narratives of bereavement and yet there are many other forms of loss that aren't embedded in our practices in these ways and aren't acknowledged. And I think quite a helpful term here is coined by Kenneth Docker. This is some disenfranchised grief or disenfranchised loss, where we need to sort of tease, tease apart various connotations of that. But we can think of it in terms of unsanctioned, unacknowledged loss, loss that may even be actively sort of excluded or stigmatized. And what really um brought this home to us was just going back to our our grief survey, so it was specifically on bereavement grief um, but I think if memory serves, it was tweeted by um somebody who heads an organization called Gateway Women, which is a support group for childless women who experience a profound sense of grief or loss, and uh, around thirty of these women responded to the survey and described grief not over bereavement but over childlessness. Now, one has to be careful here because childlessness can occur in various circumstances, some of which may involve bereavement or may be described in terms of bereavement by some or not others. But what really struck us was that these people were describing grief over childlessness per se. You know, that was an object of grief or the principal object of grief. And it was very much not about a historical event or even a sequence of historical events. It was about the loss of a possibility that was central to one's life, to one's sense of who one was in relation to others. People talked about the loss of the ability to become someone, the loss of an identity, the inability to become the person that they took themselves to be to sustain that person. But what they also describe is just the the widespread lack of acknowledgement of this as a form of grief, the way in which people will trivialise it or see it as superficial Mm. and expect people to move on. It's like, oh, well, you can try again. Mm. Um, Or adopt. Yeah. Um, And people said, you know, that often people will say, you know, talk about adopting. One person said that they'll refer to adoption as if you're popping to the supermarket to buy something. Uh, and, and they don't recognise the sheer complexities of the situation. And, the, you know, it really isn't something that can involve a simple solution in that way. So that involves a case where, if you like, you know, at least a, a sort of predicament is acknowledged, but the depth of loss or grief that can be associated with it is not. And arguably, this applies to a range of other circumstances as well, Um You know, we've we've been thinking recently about um, aging as well and the sense of loss associated with aging and whether to what extent that is acknowledged and should be acknowledged. One might even think of how we should think of human life as a whole. You know, is loss ubiquitous in human life in ways that are often sort of not acknowledged or articulated? Does living even a fulfilled life inevitably entail this sort of comet's trail of loss that continues to haunt us it's challenging to conceptualize a lot of this and i'm still not quite sure how we should go about doing so
0: Hmm. well that that brings us i think to the to the end of our conversation anyway although certainly not a conversation in general over, over the experiences of, of grief. Um, so you mentioned before what you're, what you're working on now, what is, um, w- what are your, what is your project at the moment? Are you, you're, sounds like you're following up this book, um, or the work that went into this book with, with further, um, explorations in the same vein. Um, could you say a bit yeah. about what you're doing now? Yeah.
1: Um, well, to be honest, I've spent a few months, well, maybe more than a few months with a post-book feeling of being lost, which I, I, I don't think it's that 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 uncommon. I've heard other philosophers say that they just feel miserable and apathetic having completed a book. Um, however, I suspect that the next project I'll be involved in will be a... It's likely to be collaborative again and will hopefully involve my current colleague Louise Richardson and various others. And I I think what what we will do is explore losses more generally. You talked earlier about how we define grief, whether and how we define loss or regard it as a univocal notion, I think is even more challenging. And one of the things with, well, two of the things we're thinking of doing are focusing on how loss relates to the sense of home belonging and even a sort of primitive sense of certainty the other thing we're thinking of looking at is the using the example of loss to explore the long-term dynamic structure of emotion experience which has been neglected due to a widespread emphasis on brief emotional episodes and the acknowledgement in addition to that of only sort of longer term constant moods but a lot of the time people don't describe their emotional experiences at least the important ones um, in terms of this established category rather than another Um, describing the phenomenology of emotion isn't really an exercise in static labelling. Rather, people emphasise various dynamic qualities. And also what really interests us, these kind of longer term patterns. So four things we're hoping to look at are the experience of something sinking in over time. That's been neglected. Uh, Also, what what it is for something to dawn emotionally. And that's not quite the same as sinking in, at least not in all contexts, because something can dawn on us and then take time to sink in. Um, And in relation to this, we also want to look at the possibilities for avoidance and denial. But the other thing that I'm increasingly taken by is this notion of emotional haunting. People talk about this all the time, and I don't think philosophers have done it at all. What is it to be haunted by something? And in how many different ways are we haunted?
0: Very good. Well, we are out of time, uh, for the interview, but, um, all of that sounds very interesting. And, um, I for one look forward to seeing more work along these veins. Um, but yeah. So, um, thank you again for agreeing, uh, to talk with new books and philosophy. And I, I, wish you, um, all the best with, with the, uh, the work you're, uh, you're doing at the moment.
1: Yeah, you too. Thank you very much for the conversation.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Matthew Ratcliffe, professor of philosophy at the University of York. We've been talking about his new book, Grief Worlds, A Study of Emotional Experience, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.